morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. This morning we're going to continue our exploration of the weekly portion known in Hebrew as the parasha that is uh, read and explored in synagogues and Jewish study halls throughout the world. This week, we continue to read from the book of Genesis, Bereshit, and our parasha is known as Vayetze, uh, meaning, and he left or he alighted, uh, and perhaps we'll uh, probe the term itself. It begins in Genesis 28 and continues through the beginning of Genesis 32. I'm going to offer an overview of the parasha before my guest and I look at some specifics of the parasha. Jacob, the third of the three patriarchs, leaves his hometown of Beersheba and journeys to Haran. On the way, he encounters what the Torah portion tells us is Hamakom, the place, and he sleeps there dreaming of a ladder connecting heaven and earth with angels climbing and descending on it. God appears to Jacob and promises that the land upon which he lies will be given to his descendants. In the morning, Jacob raises the stone on which he had laid his head as an altar, a monument, pledging that it will be made the house of God. The story changes a bit, and it says, in Haran, Jacob stays with and works for his uncle Laban, tending Laban's sheep. Laban agrees to give him his younger daughter, Rachel, whom Jacob loves, in marriage, in return for seven years later, labor. But on the wedding night, uh, Laban gives him his eldest daughter, Leah, instead, a deception Jacob discovers only in the morning. Jacob marries Rachel, too, a week later, after agreeing to work another seven years. 14 years for the two daughters. The Torah portion tells us that Leah gave birth to six sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon, and a daughter, Dina. While Rachel remains barren, Rachel gives Jacob her handmaid, Bilchah, as a wife to bear children in her stead. And two more sons, Don, Naphtali, are born. Leah does the same with her handmaiden, Zilpah, who gives birth to Gad and Asher. Finally, the text tells us that Rachel's prayer is answered and she gives birth to Joseph. Jacob is now 14 years in Haran and wishes to return home. But Laban persuades him to remain, now offering him sheep in return for his labor. Jacob prospers despite Laban's repeated attempts to swindle him. After six years, Jacob leaves Haran in stealth, fearing that Laban would prevent him from leaving with family and property for which he labored. Laban pursues Jacob, but is warned by God in a dream, the way the Torah portion began, not to harm him. Laban and Jacob make a pact on Mount Galad attesting to by a pile of stones, and Jacob proceeds to Holy Land, where he is met, according to the tradition, by angels. Uh, If you have been following along, you know that each and every week I introduce a darshan, uh, 
an individual who will help us interpret the Torah portion and find the deeper meaning beyond the literal words. This week, my guest is Rabbi Philip Bregman, Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Shalom in Vancouver, British Columbia. He started working at the congregation and helped the congregation grow from 70 families to over 700 member families. He had worked there for over 30 years, perhaps uh, 33 years, and was a uh, pillar of the Vancouver Jewish community. He now serves as uh, part of the interfaith community in Vancouver, working out of the University of British Columbia's Hillel Jewish Student Association and helping that organization be a bastion of security and safety for Jewish students and a light to the nations about interfaith work. It's a pleasure to invite Rabbi Philip Bregman uh, to join with us, and I thank you for uh, sharing your wisdom with us. That's my cue? That's your cue. <laughs> uh, okay, thank you. Thank so, you. Rabbi Bregman, we're going to start at um, the first part of the story, yes? Yes. About the dream. Yes. Let me just say one thing. Um, um, when I finished at Temple Shalom, I was the executive director at Hillel for eight years, but I finished that two years ago. I'm now the interfaith liaison for Federation. Ah. And, and uh, I have a interfaith team. Uh, sounds like the beginning of a joke because there's a Christian and a Muslim, there's a Sikh. Uh, uh, indigenous, black, uh, Asian, and we're called the other people. And we go around to various high schools and, uh, in fact, elementary schools and now even industry uh, talking about racism and bigotry. And we've been doing this for two years, and we are just coming up to now over 5,000 students that we've spoken to uh, and uh, individuals. Anyway. Getting back to the parasha, yes. Well, let, let's take a moment on that. This must be a very interesting time in history to be doing that kind of interfaith work. It is a, a very interesting time, so to speak, if you like to use that word. Uh, yes, it's a, um, a challenging uh, period of time, absolutely. Uh, very uh, fortunately, uh, members of my team, uh, we are a very, very supportive, caring, a group of individuals who um, are very much concerned with what is happening in the lives of each one of us. And um, I am very, very fortunate to have a uh, fantastic relationship um, uh, with, with everyone, but at this particular time, in particular with my Muslim colleagues, as we are uh, asked to, uh, excuse me, not only come into schools, but now into industry as well, and discuss, you know, what's happening. Um, and, you know, and what we've come to the conclusion is that it's not really history uh, that is necessary right now, because we don't have that much time when we're speaking to individuals to go through a history of the Middle East. What is called for is empathy, caring and understanding. Uh, for example, yesterday we were in a school and one of the teachers uh, this was an elementary middle school, 
And one of the teachers said, you know, I have some Jewish friends. I really don't know what to say. I know they're hurting at this time. And I said, I really appreciate the question, but I want to broaden it because this time is not just an issue with, uh, for the, uh, uh, for the emotional, uh, actual upheaval and, and, and chaos that's going on within the Jewish community. I'd like to broaden that to the Jewish community, to the Israeli community, not necessarily the same, to the Muslim community and to the Palestinian community. And I can, I'm going to give you four words that will change the dialogue completely. This is what you simply need to say, but mean it. How are you doing? And by asking that, you're giving someone permission to then tell you how they're feeling. And I'll tell you, uh, certainly as a Jew, that is sorely needed. We need to hear from people who are supposedly our friends or colleagues and everything else. Because in so many instances, what we're hearing is that there's radio silence uh, on the part of many individuals. Well, that's why I wanted to take some of our time this morning to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners that there are uh, entrees into conversation amongst uh, multicultural communities, um, and that you've named a number of communities, all whom are feeling uh, emotional uh, impact and uh, dislocation, emotional dislocation. And for some of the communities, this is an existential moment. And uh, reaching out to them, as you and your team do, is a uh, statement of uh, religious faith without liturgical uh, impediments. So I want to thank you for sharing that with our listeners, and I hope it's been helpful. And now I'll allow you to return to Joseph's dream, Jacob's dream. Well, somebody's dream. Well, I was, I was teaching Joseph this morning. That's why oh, it gets okay. confusing. Well, that raises a whole issue, and that is that there are a number of themes in the Torah that get repeated. And we have them here in this parasha that uh, you uh, brilliantly summarized. We've got dreams, and that's going to come back. We have the idea of being barren. That has happened. That continues on. Um, uh, we have trickery, uh, another theme that uh, took place in last week's parasha and is going to take place in this week's parasha. And so you can sort of all, almost say what goes around comes around. Now, what I want to get to is this uh, aspect of this uh, individual Jacob. I, I love Jacob. I love Jacob as a character. I find him in his younger years to be absolute, an absolute, um, um, uh, what, he is treacherous in the sense that he is conniving. He knows what's going on. He's prepared to uh, really uh, uh, screw his brother, uh, uh, Esau, and, um, and continues on now. And what we're seeing is this part, this parasha, I believe, is the beginning of the metamorphosis that we're ultimately going to see when we're going to get another theme, and that's a name change in next week's parasha. But the name change is not simply the adding of a letter or the changing of a name. It's representing a maturity or a absolute... Um, delving into one's personality and realizing where I've been is not where I need to be going. So it's Jacob's epiphany next week. Yes, but I believe it starts 
in Good. this week's podcast. And for our listeners who may not be as conversant with uh, text as Rabbi Bregman, I would remind them that uh, Abraham and Sarah are introduced as Avram and Sarai. And the rabbi referred to the letter being added to their name, which uh, changes their name from Avram to Avraham and Sarai to Sarah. Uh, And he correctly indicates that in the text, um, it seems to be simply a name change reflective of a different status. But with Jacob, which will take place next week, the name change is uh, a, a major transition from what the character was, as uh, Rabbi Bregman told us, a trickster uh, and somebody who makes uh, a living out of taking something from others into what he will be uh, beginning next week and through the end of the book of uh, Genesis. So with that, um, please go on and help us understand this dream sequence. Okay, so I want to get to this. um, uh, It's at the beginning of the portion. We're in chapter 28 of Bereshit of Genesis. And uh, verse uh, 16 is where I want to really uh, uh, concentrate. And it says, And, And he awoke from his sleep. Okay. And, and, and he said, okay. Now the translation generally is, surely God is in this place and I didn't know it. But it's fascinating because if you take a look at the Hebrew, there seems to be a repetition of the word I. And as a matter of fact, it says, and I, lo yadati. Now, the expression lo yadati means I didn't know. So why is it, why is the word anochi there? Because as I learned from Rabbi Larry Kushner, we really need to translate this and surely I, I didn't know it. Okay, that's a literal translation. And you rarely see the I repeated. They simply say, oh, surely God is in this place and I didn't know it. No, that's not what it says. It says, surely God is in this place and I, I didn't know it. So the emphasis, even for our listeners who may not be looking at a biblical text, is on the additional word, uh, anochi, that loyadati in Hebrew already includes the uh, pronoun I. So why, is, Rabbi Bregman is asking, as others have before him, why do we have a repetition of the pronoun I? Exactly. Now, some, some might say, okay, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's literary emphasis. Yeah, true. But for me, it's, it's much more significant. God is in a place, and I didn't know it. Okay, why would you not know it? Well, number one, you simply might not be aware of what's going on. You know, there, there are times when we're, we're, we're somewhere and there's a lot going on and there's only so much that we can process. Maybe something else has our attention. 
But I don't think anything else has got his attention because he's out there by himself in, in sort of in the wilderness. He's not in the middle of a mall somewhere. He's he he's not uh, in a marketplace. Uh, okay, so what is it? There's too much I. Okay, Jacob comes to realize how egocentric he is, and. In order to recognize God, he has to, to a certain extent, remove part of his ego from the equation. Because he has not allowed any room for anything, any person, even a spiritual being, to enter into his realm because it's all him. Now, we all know individuals, and if we're honest, possibly, not possibly, ourselves as well at times, where we go into a situation and we just take up too much oxygen. There's just too much of us in the equation to allow or recognize someone else or something else that's going on. So this is, for me, the major epiphany where Jacob now has to step back and say, hmm, maybe this life is more than just me. Maybe it's about something far greater than me. Now, I think it's interesting that uh, we should be discussing this with you sitting in the holy city of Ottawa. <laughs> okay? And I say that because having been there a few weeks ago, and nothing seems to have changed, the city is replete with egos. Completely. And if you go into the House of Commons... You really have to ask the question, is anybody leaving any space for anybody else there? Uh, just parenthetically, for those listeners who may not be in Canada, Ottawa is the, the nation's capital, the equivalent of Washington, D.C. And if you're listening to us in the United States or elsewhere, perhaps you can apply the rabbi's insights to the capital city of your own country. You might. <laughs> okay. And, and you know, and, and, and I say this because, you know, the one place as a pedagogue that I would never, ever bring students is the House of Commons during question period. And the same thing goes for the provincial legislatures. Now, you know, I'm going to be off this uh, broadcast in, in, a, in relatively few minutes, but you'll have to stay there in Ottawa and deal with the uh, <laughs> aftermath. Um, and the reason I don't want to bring people there, it's a zoo. No one is listening. It's simply trying to score points. And the same thing, of course, occurs in Congress or the Senate. The same thing, of course, occurs in the Knesset, in, 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 in parliaments around the world. Everybody's, no one's listening because it's all about me, 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 me. And that's what the Parashah is talking about, where Jacob is coming to a realization that it's more than just me. It's about us. It's Jacob, about, Jacob in a is broader uh, sense. 
Jacob is the uh, youngster who stole his brother's uh, birthright. Uh, he's the brother who stole his brother's blessing. Um, and so throughout the earlier chapters of Genesis that speak about Jacob, it is all about him um, and about his needs. Um, and even with the story um, in this week's Torah portion about the wives, uh, it's all about Jacob. Exactly. And so I see this line as the Mavteach, the key to open a door and not only to go into another room, but to go into another existence of understanding of life. That while, yes, we need to nourish ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, and so on, but we do not do that in isolation. And it goes back to a statement that I made uh, earlier when this teacher asks, you know, how do I respond to my Jewish friends? I wanted to open that up beyond her Jewish friends. I wanted to open it up to Israelis, to Muslims, to Palestinians, to make it a broader conversation and not simply the conversation of I or me. And to recognize that in this conflict, and, and it is not an easy one to, to necessarily understand, it has broad implications. I, I will get back. Uh, uh, last week, I uh, was in another high school. And the question, we get kids uh, asking us questions, but the questions come into us uh, anonymously. Uh, to allow uh, greater participation on the part of the students. And the questions were fantastic. But there were, and there were 550 uh, uh, students, uh, this particular one, as there were yesterday. But this was a high school uh, last week, and there were no questions from the floor. Anyway, as I was leaving, um, this young, uh, lovely uh, female student came up to me. She was wearing a hijab, and she said, can I ask you a question? I said, by all means. And she said, I'd like your take on what's happening in, in Gaza. And I said, wow, thank you. Thank you so very much. And I said, but before I talk about Gaza, per se, I need to talk about October 7th. And she said to me, what happened on October 7th? Now, that becomes a wow moment because we in the Jewish community have become, if I can say, somewhat fixated on October 7th. 10-7 has, to some extent, become our 9-11. And, and again, for our listeners, just to make sure you're uh, following the conversation, October 7th, a Saturday, uh, was the day in which members, individuals uh, representing Hamas and other terrorist groups invaded Israel from Gaza and, uh, to the best of our knowledge, murdered uh, in quite horrendous ways uh, over 1,200 individuals and took over 250 hostages. And that became the seminal moment 
that led to the Israeli government's decision uh, to enter Gaza and to try and reclaim the hostages um, in ways that were uh, beyond simply uh, negotiation. Exactly. And so I, I described it, and, and she was standing there with her uh, some of her classmates, and it was like a, a aha moment. It was fascinating because we uh, certainly, many of us in the Jewish community are so uh, tuned into this October 7th that when we hear somebody say, well, what happened on October 7th? It's like, you know, the rest of the world doesn't necessarily know. And, 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 and that's okay because there's so many things that happen every day that we're not aware of, 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 of that are catastrophic in our places of the world. And if it's not on our uh, screen, uh, it's not in our consciousness. Okay, so I described it. And I said, because it's important to understand, you know, Israel didn't wake up one day and say, it's a slow news day, let's go into Gaza. Uh, it, 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 it happened for a reason. Anyway, I went on to describe it, and, and, I, and then I said to her, um, do, you, um, do you know what an analogy is? Yes. I said, well, I'm going to give you my analogy. It may not work for you, but it works for me, and, and I'd like you to listen and challenge it. Uh, and I said, you know, for me, Hamas is a cancer. It's a tumor. And... Um, um, and and they you know being held captive is not only the hostages but most of the Palestinian Gazan population are being held hostage by Hamas and have been for years and uh, for about sixteen years because they had elections they got duly elected and then they haven't had elections coming up to seventeen years okay I said and you know in dealing with cancer there are different therapies and one of the therapies that is very very difficult is something called chemotherapy. And chemotherapy, you're trying to directly affect the tumor that is usually hiding behind healthy organs. And there's going to be some collateral damage with those healthy organs in order to get to the tumor. So, Rabbi, I appreciate you um, expanding the notion of uh, making room for others when you withdraw from the eye. Uh, in um, Hasidic thought, um, of course, in Kabbalistic thought, this is known as stimsum, withdrawing so that there's room for others. Precisely. And, and uh, certainly in the Torah portion, as you so eloquently um, identified for us, uh, Jacob has to withdraw from his own ego in order to make room for his discovery of the divine. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Phil Bregman of Vancouver, British Columbia, who works uh, intimately with members of other faith communities. And during these challenging times in the Middle East and elsewhere, his work is essential to providing opportunities for dialogue. You can hear our conversation on uh, CHRIFM or as a podcast on chri.ca uh, website, or you can download it from wherever you find podcasts. I want to thank him again for Jewish faith and Jewish facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Uh, I wish you a good day. 
And I hope that we have uh, explored ways in which you can withdraw and hear others speak. Shalom and be well. <laughs>